Welcome to the Ideas Sleep Furiously podcast. I'm Matt Archer. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Alex Christoyanopoulos, a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Loughborough University. One of Alex's many specialisms is the study of nonviolent resistance. Alex recently penned an article in the conversation about the possibilities nonviolent tactics offer the Ukrainians as well as the Russians who wish to resist Putin. If you're watching this on YouTube, then that article is linked in the description down below. And remember that you can listen to this conversation on all the major podcasting platforms. But without further ado, I give you Dr. Alex Christoyanopoulos. We're going to talk about nonviolent resistance and its potential in the Ukraine. Um, I want to start by saying that let's assume that Russia is targeting civilians and it's as barbaric as mainstream news is making out. Uh, you've just penned this article for uh, the conversation on the possibilities of uh, a pacifist response. Do you want to outline what the possibilities are and make the case for nonviolent resistance? Because I realise that this must have been an incredibly hard article to write because you're you're fighting so many uphill battles and so many preconceptions from from the get-go it is and so I'll, I'll, let me try and I'll, I'll also uh, I suppose not, not come clean but explained also that I suppose I come at it especially from a sort of pacifist perspective because that's what I've researched myself a bit more rather than a sort of non-violent resistance one and there is a bit of a I don't know about a divide but there, there's there's the two ends of that spectrum in in um, in the scholarship and and, and some who advocate nonviolent resistance are quite keen to distance themselves from the term pacifism. And that's to do with the fact that the term pacifism continues to be, as Richard Jackson says, subjugated in the sense of it, of it being both dismissed and denigrated. It's not, it's not considered the kinds of things that pacifists argue about violence, about war, about militarism, which could well be of interest to those studying those things in international relations, are not considered. They are dismissed and they are denigrated. They're assumed to be absolutist positions when some pacifists are, and the one that I've studied most closely, Tolstoy is, but many aren't. So that's kind of the, the first hurdle, uh, is, is, is the fact that pacifism is often kind of denigrated. But since Tolstoy wrote what he wrote a little over a century ago, from Gandhi onwards, who was partly inspired by Tolstoy, but let's, let's not overdo it, there were other inspirations too, nevertheless, you have with Gandhi and a lot of people who followed him a kind of operationalization of uh, elements of what pacifism stands for into a tactic of nonviolent resistance to all sorts of issues, sometimes to violence and militarism, sometimes to other things like gender inequality or, or whatever else. And, and we have plenty of evidence by now that it's not as ineffective as people seem to think it is. In fact, there's, a, there's this seminal study now published in uh, 11 years ago by Erica Chenoweth and um, Maria Stefan. They looked at over 300 cases of resistance, violent and nonviolent, over a, a little over a century. They coded it. They coded the outcomes, successful, partially success, successful, and failures. And the outcome is pretty rigorously clear, um, at least using their data, their methodology, which is fairly rigorous. And it basically goes as follows. Both violent resistance and nonviolent resistance, so both violent and nonviolent resistance, fail more often than they succeed. Let's be clear. But nonviolent resistance succeeds twice more often than violent resistance. That's what the data seems to show. Okay, um, so 
Why might that be? And this is where it's partly conjecture, but partly based on when you look at kind of a deeper dive into these case studies. Among the phenomena that seems at play is that with nonviolent resistance, it doesn't mean that no violence happens, but it's violence that you suffer, that you absorb. Just like with violence, by the way, you fight, they fight, you die as well. Uh, I mean, keeping it really simplistic. But when you're resisting nonviolently, you might risk nonviolent uh, violence upon yourself, but you you resist the urge to fight nonviolently, to resist to resist violently. Sorry, that seems to trigger some hesitation, some difficulties for the opponent because it's harder now to dehumanize you. You're being addressed as the repressor here, as a violent person, as a human being, um, rather than as a, as a dehumanized enemy. Doesn't necessarily mean that the person who was about to shoot the kind of meanest element of the regime, if you want necessarily come to their senses and suddenly change their ways. But what does seem to happen with nonviolent resistance campaigns is over time, the elements that are supportive of the regime, police, high-end generals, whatever, you know, uh, the media, the kinds of forces that the regime also relies on, start to wither away. The pillars of support for the regime are pull, pulled apart by movements that or at least can be it seems when it's effective by, by movements that resist res relentlessly despite violence sometimes being suffered by them whereas with violence they, these pillars get pulled together it kind of strengthens the resolve so that's one thing that seems to happen it, it changes because it addresses i suppose the opponent as a human being because it says look I, I, I'm making a stand. I'm not, I'm not letting this happen, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take risks. Kind of jolts you, makes you rethink. It seems to be one of the things that happen that happens in that. So let's let's try to inject then some some needed realism because you've, you, I, I imagine people are going to be listening to this and thinking, okay, fine, you've got these studies. It works twice uh, as as often. It, it, it seems to work twice as often as um, violent resistance. What about uh, analogous studies to? the one that we're watching, which is a imperialist war, a seemingly much mightier military in Russia, with someone who seems to, Putin, have no scruples about, for instance, killing civilians who uh, are evacuating from the cities. Um, so, and perhaps it's also then worth talking about the nonviolent resistance that we've already seen in both Ukraine and Russia. Yes. Yes. And so before I just get to that, let me just uh, make another admission as well along the way, which is that things get messy, as in, um, in many cases where there have been uh, nonviolent campaigners for something, there may have been a violent flank as well, and vice versa. And, and both can kind of claim the success or blame the other for the failure. And it, 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 it quickly gets complicated. So let's admit that. And also let's admit that what, for example, that study looks at is by and large um, sort of domestic movements against repression, okay, repressive regimes, despots, etc. It's not exactly the, the scenario that we have here, which is more of an invasion, okay. Um, now, examples in Ukraine that we've seen so far um, include uh, people demonstrating on the streets in Russia, for example, despite personal risks, uh, new, new public figures scientists, clerics signing various petitions, um, you know, 
public figures, pop stars, whatnot, uh, claiming that they oppose the war on, on social media, again, despite personal risks. This is in, in Russia. Uh, in Ukraine, some there, there are videos of people. This was, to be fair, in the, the first week, I suppose. There's fewer of these I see these days, but, but maybe they're around or that, that, I don't know, they're not reaching me. Uh, but the people who kind of walk tanks back, like a, a crowd of people walking up towards a Russian tank, leading it to sort of reverse. Um, does it mean that tomorrow it's not going to start again? No, but it's, it's, it's impressive, I suppose. And, and it takes some guts, by the way. Uh, verbal tirades, people who shouting at Russian soldiers or, you know, elderly people talk, talking to, 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 trying to talk them out, addressing them. And here, I suppose, the fact that there's a common language and, and an identity that's not that different maybe helps. You have things like the Interior Ministry asking residents to take street signs down in order to confuse the, the, the Russian uh, troops. Now, there's no end to the kinds of things you can do non-violently. There's loads of things that can be done. And, and if you look at the history of non-violent action, non-violent resistance over the, I mean, if you pick up from Gandhi onwards anyway, there may be examples earlier, but, but you know, th there's really loads of different things that can be done with different degrees of risks, okay, posed mm -hmm. to the person doing it. Um, but human creativity is quite inspiring. Inspiring, um, and, and and all sorts of things can be done and have been done, um, you know, historically in in in, in trying to trying to push back on, I suppose, repression at the very least, and also, by the way, potentially invasion. So let me let, let me go to a question you might ask, um, often thrown at pacifists: What about Hitler? Um, you cowardly pacifists would surely admit that violence was necessary. Um, I mean, there's various angles to this question, but without uh, unpacking them all, depending on what you want me to focus on, it's important to note that there was nonviolent resistance to Hitler too. And even though maybe I could concede if we, if we talk this through that violence was an important element in, in fighting back and, and, and was part of the success. And, and I'm not going to concede that too quickly. Um, there was, you know, there were graffiti in um, Germany, underground newspapers, slow working, hiding and smuggling Jews. The White Rose Movement in Munich didn't succeed in the end, but there was opposition. And then in countries like Denmark, Norway, Netherlands, all sorts of resistance with different degrees of sort of risks and solidarity um, to deportation and collaboration um, you know, with, with the final solution and whatnot. So, and this is the reason I'm bringing it, um, shooting myself in the foot, is this is a case of an invasion, but you can still kind of refuse to collaborate. Now, let's also say this. Okay, it might be that, you know, listeners might think, hey, well, that's, that sounds lovely. And by the way, oh yeah, I must confess, this is me talking from Britain where, you know, I'm sheltered, I'm comfortable. Mm -hmm. I suppose the nuclear war is... Is, a, is an uncomfortable possibility, even if it's a small one, but it's, it is there. Uh, but it's easier for me to say this here than, than you know, in Kyiv on, on, on the ground facing kind of invading troops. So I'll, I'll acknowledge yeah. that. And, and as you say in the article, you're not lecturing people on what to do. You're just asking the question of, I mean, there is a right answer here. You know, there is a right answer. It, we have to obviously state our... Our, our goals rather than just uh, relying on you know implied premises but you know clearly if everyone were to lay down their arms tomorrow then um you know maybe they would be obliterated maybe ukraine would be swept away but that's a short-term view 
right? This is the, the, the I, I imagine that the people who have written about nonviolence, re, nonviolent resistance, are much more interested in uh, the longer term, right? And discussing what metrics we use to 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 um, decide on what constitutes a victory. But to be clear, it's not like the violent path ahead prevents yeah. people from dying along the way so you, in you know, an asymmetric war as well that's obviously in, in the abstract you might say oh exactly you know, if we drop our guns that they'll just kind of kill us all i mean i suppose they might of course it's a possibility i i suspect that they'll stop before anywhere close to that because they'll realize the, the inhumanity of what they're doing at least in part and by the way it's not just a case of laying down your weapons and just waiting to be rolled over again there's all forms of resistance which are mm -hmm. non-violent that can be uh, that can be used in, in all sorts of spaces and um, you know areas of life in your daily life, um, etc. Et um, but but again, to be clear, violent resistance doesn't exactly guarantee success, nor does it guarantee you know survival of the the person yeah. kind of inflicting it. So it, 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 what I find interesting with non-violent forms of resistance is that they're both more ethical in a sense okay uh, treating the opponent with respect addressing them as human beings you know less blood on the floor that cannot be undone but they're also more effective it seems but by the evidence certainly kind of against despots as far as the evidence goes and by the way that evidence works in in in, in democracies as well as uh, with authoritarian regimes there isn't a difference in in the apparent success if you want uh, the likelihood of success just because kind of against a democracy like Gandhi against you know the, the nicely democratic British Empire as, as, mm. as the story often goes um, much harder against uh, a dictator not true in the Philippines Marcos was brought down um, you know by a campaign of nonviolent resistance there's loads, again, loads of examples but so uh, yeah I, I digress one of the interesting things you say in the article is um, you know Gene Sharp listed this uh, American political scientist uh, listed 198 potential methods of nonviolent resistance and uh, you say that this this list has been updated with the uh with the possibilities the internet opens up could you talk about some of these um these new possibilities and perhaps some of the tried and true methods as well i mean the, the list is uh is is long and includes anything from sort of declarations slogans banners leaflets newspapers i mean i'm just scanning over the list now mm. um you know, group lobbying, mock elections, and then it kind of escalates as you go through, you know, you, religious processions, pilgrimages, motorcades, um, public uh, meetings, assemblies, silences, um, and then you get into methods of non-cooperations, boycotts, whether social, student strikes, or economic boycotts, I suppose, um, and the like, and on to, um, so I'm just, I'm gonna skip there, um, strikes, uh, which might be detailed or generalized. Um, and then yes, confronting the enemy, such as, you know, walking a tank off as it were, you know, mm -hmm. clearly at, at personal risk. So this isn't just disobeying, this is, you know, in the street where, where, where violence is likely to be inflicted upon you and, and, yeah. and your, and your um, you know, uh, your, your group, I suppose, your, your activists. Um, and I mean, I, I'm not aware of many studies. There must be some. But it's just, he's famously listed 198 potential methods in 1973. But the sheer number of um, examples since then kind of diversifies it already because they don't all necessarily fit perfectly, you know, in that list anyway. And yes, the internet offers more options. Um, 
in that. And so this is, again, looking at the list. I mean, th that particular study, I link only lists, I think, 10, 10 further examples, but there are things like uh, maptivism using uh, using trends and, and hashtags and um, self-surveillance flash mobs, live streaming. These are things that, that the internet allows, but but um, yeah, it's, 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 it's another technology that opens up another space where, of course, things can be done. And I, I think what, one of the things I find interesting is uh, about all this is the authorities can always catch up on something, ban something, but human creativity so far when resisting seems to often be able to come up with another tactic, another way of kind of sort of getting around whatever's been banned and still being visible, making sound. Does that mean that there will always be one option? I don't know. I suppose in a perfect, perfectly authoritarian, dystopian, you know, <laughs> despotic regime, maybe there won't be. But, but actually, I suspect that there are always ways of resisting without necessarily embracing violence. Do you think um, that there's a kind of, there's a potentially naive understanding of human psychology um, whereby if you do, so let's go, let's go back to the Nazi Germany example. If you, if you read a book like uh, Ordinary Men, right, about um, the police battalions, in uh, Poland, I believe, about how, again, these, oh, you can see by the title, like, ordinary men were manipulated uh, into killing Jews en masse. Um, and the idea, therefore, that these people were evil is horrifically simplistic. Um, and to thus advocate mass non-violence is perhaps to hold some implicit premise there, some, some implicit understanding of human psychology, which some might call naive, because there are people, ordinary people, who um, will and can be moved to genocide. Once the people who have been moved that way are there or in that zone where they're administering violence on a mass scale, for example, I mean, there's the banality of evil thesis and, 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 you know, uh, and, and so on. Fighting them violently is only going to make them feel threatened as a group. Again, it doesn't necessarily resolve what you're asking, especially if they're ordinary people who have, I suppose, been manipulated, if you want to use simplistic sort of ways of, of, mm -hmm. of, of understanding it, uh, then they were human beings, they still are, they are probably you know, relatable, they might not be potentially, you know, brought to complete agreement with you, but again, fighting them is only likely to strengthen their resolve. And by the way, which one is the most naive? Um, there's, there's, a, there's a nice line in a, in a famous article that kind of concludes that it's, it's, it's probably the advocates of violence that are the naive utopians rather than the pacifists. It's not that violence has solved things for us. I mean, we live in a world where you know weapons have been escalated to the potential to bring the end of human civilization within two hours. Just, I mean, and, and by the way, what makes you think that the people on the other side are the only evil ones? Are you sure that you want to create sort of administrations of, uh, of potential violence on, on, on your end, because you trust that whoever will get to the sort of levers of that will, even at your end, always be good people with the right aims in, in, in mind, the right sort of targets. It's, I'm, I'm getting muddled a bit here, but 
um, I think, I mean, human psychology is, is fascinating. I mean, I know for one, listening to your podcast that, you, you know, you've studied it a fair bit and probably more than I have. Uh, but, but I do think that if you get to arguments about human nature and human psychology, it gets interesting, but I don't think it vindicates any better the arguments for violent resistance. Um, if anything, again, I think you're addressing fellow human beings more ethically and more effectively if you're addressing them non-violently. And to repeat, it doesn't mean not resisting or not doing anything or being mm -hmm. passive. And it's not easy and it's challenging to think of ways of doing it. And that's that's why in many ways the 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 the, the jump to guns is the quick and easy tried and tested method the one that uh, you know we're used to in our culture you know the, the savior comes in and shoots at bad people again i've often been struck this is a silly little anecdotal way of putting it but you know osama bin laden vladimir putin people like that i'm sure were cute as babies uh, something happened in life that that brought them to become the people they they are and to take decisions that they're taking now are they salvageable i'm not sure that's that's not what I'm claiming, but mm. here's the other, here's the thing. I think for me, what what in a way, in many ways, the kind of the the audience of nonviolent resistance isn't necessarily exactly the person who's kind of at the levers of the tank or you know has you in their sights in their in in, in the target. But it's 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 the people around them, the people surrounding them, the people the people supporting them, um, whose allegiance could be, um, yeah. Uh, um, uh, um, taken away, withered away, uh, you know, uh, affected kind of gradually. And by the way, we are seeing that the echoes seem to be so far with Vladimir Putin's regime. Now, it, it, he's being resisted violently too. I'm not going to claim that this is just the act of nonviolent resistance, but he's clearly miscalculated. There are clearly questions being raised. I mean, he must be a worried paranoid all dictators are about yeah. their, their survival you know and, and there are there are rumors about people thinking of a coup i mean I, it's hard to know what's true what's not um but there will be pressure and he will expect it domestically because he can see that this is a massive miscalculation for all sorts of reasons and again i'm, I'm not going to claim it's, it's it's just a non-violent resistance that's playing a role but but by the way the economic sanctions that have been imposed in russia well are short of war, right? I mean, I'm not going to claim they're non-violent entirely because they're, they're going to be costly to people. They will mm -hmm. cause death indirectly at the very least mm -hmm. uh, and, and suffering uh, in, in Russia. So I don't want to claim they're as neat as kind of just non-violent, um, but they are forms of, I suppose, technically non-violent resistance in some way. And they're putting substantial pressure on the regime and certainly its supporters. But what do you think about something like uh, the opportunity to, um, for example, assassinate a high-profile, um, well, it, it could be Putin or just a high-profile military commander? I saw on the BBC, I think, earlier today that um, there are reports that a high-ranking Russian officer has been uh, assassinated. Uh, the second, I think last week, there was someone who was uh, taken out by a sniper, which shows that the war isn't going particularly smoothly if you have uh, major generals on on the front line. So do you think that that is... Cause I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to think of uh, opportunities that are too good to miss. You know, that, that is such a victory in if we, in the traditional, you know, in, in the traditional, what would you say, uh, parameters of the of, of the discourse of war that to say no don't take the shot when you've got a 
you know, a clear headshot on Vladimir Putin or a major general would be uh, lunacy to most people. What do you think about that? Let, let me answer with a, 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 a little detour. Um, Osama bin Laden was killed. Did that resolve mm. Salafi jihadism? It's 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 what it, it it is somewhat simplistic to assume that just decapitating a movement somehow incapacitates it forever. The fact of the matter is also that violence is likely to strengthen the resolve of at least some of the people who were supportive of the person who against whom that violence was inflicted. Now, I, with Putin, it's difficult. I mean, it is interesting that still to date, even the Western media describe it by and large as Putin's war and, and rather than Russia um, in general. This, this, and I think that, I mean, that, that's obviously, well, it looks to me anyway, to be a, a rather accurate um, nuance, as it were. So, in, but to start with your generals, sure. So they've killed some generals. Does that mean that no other that, that, that no generals will continue to be that they're replaceable? And the more you kill, the more <laughs> there are victims and relatives on the other side whose resolve might be strengthened. I, I can see the appeal of the decapitation. I'm not going to claim otherwise, especially as I think, and I mean I admit that in that article, by the way, as as walls come they rarely give you as strong a case that the that the that, that violence is justified as in it, it meets most of the criteria of just war thinking uh, arguably all of them much more kind of rigorously than, than many other conflicts we can think of um so i i, I can see the appeal I, I just don't know whether it resolves it and i'm going to also kind of do another little distraction and ask Let's and again, inevitably, it's speculating, etc. Assume that Russia manages to uh, invade or at least invade the eastern half of Ukraine or something like that. You know, the tanks roll through. Um, Russia's in control. It, it, it's got control of the country by day, as it were. It can put the administration it wants. We know, I mean, we've seen that from a lot of the commentary that, you know, you, you can probably expect violent guerrilla-like warfare and you could call it terrorism if you want, but there will be continued resistance. I'm, I'm interested in the question, you know, which form of resistance is, again, more likely to be effective in the long run? And again, will it be continuous violence of a, of a sort of shadowy kind or all forms of resistance, you know, and there's plenty out there, coordinated, um, which one's more likely to get more people in Russia to think, really, we need to pull out? Which one's more likely to get people in Russia to think, Jesus, these people, they, they, they killed my son, you know, I, they, they need to be brought uh, to, to, to obey. Again, violence tends to harden resolves on both sides. And by the way, might, again, I put that briefly in, in, in the article, those neo-Nazis in, in Ukraine, they're a minority, by the way, we've got some everywhere, but you know, they're, not, they're not to be neglected. They, are, they were a factor not so long ago, but they're not a majority. It's, it's an excuse that the regime is using. But they might bubble up. Whenever conflicts like these rage on for a while, the harder ends of the spectrum often end up coming closer to the surface and um, framing the narrative. So. Again, it's kind of where do you see things going with ongoing violence compared to, 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 to nonviolent resistance? Now, yeah, I've avoided your question because I don't really want to answer it. Did, you know, kill Putin? Would you would if, if you had if you could? I, I don't know. Um, but 
it's also worth, I suppose, um, two things. One, th that very thinking, think about what it does to the person who feels targeted. Uh, so there are, I was reading somewhere yeah. that it seems that Putin was particularly affected by the fate of Muammar Gaddafi, uh, you know, famously found hiding. Uh, and I'm not going to go into the details, but the final hour wasn't great. Yeah. So he's terrified of that. Um, he probably has miscalculated, realized that he's miscalculated, but he's a bit stuck. You know, people talk now of a, of a, of a off ramp, exit ramp. He needs a way out um, that that remains sort of vulnerable enough. Um, so there are options of that kind. And on the other hand, uh, the other thing to think about, I think, which is a much broader reflection, which I think pacifism brings to the table, it's what our readiness to violence, our preparedness for it, our militarization does to us as a, as a people, as a society, how violence constitutes us as war-ready people who's, uh, you know, whose readiness may well quickly be called upon for the next military adventure. I mean, and, and, and it, 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 there's all of that, I think, which is also interesting to, to, to bring to the mix. It, it's it's yeah. what, how it constitutes you as an identity. And so, for example, in, the, in, 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 in terms of Ukrainian identity and how it gets defined through this conflict, it'll be interesting to see how much of that identity in, in the longer run is an identity of resistance that was at least in part, in a substantial part, perhaps creative and nonviolence, and how much of it was, you know, born in the in, in the flames of violence and how, how that then becomes constructed, reconstructed, remembered, um, you know, in the long term in 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 in, in historical narratives. So it, it, it yeah, that's kind of trying to extend yeah. what I've just said about how it constitutes it in the, into the long run. But look, I'm well, not claiming any of this is easy. Yeah, I, I, I think this is uh, because my laptop is also dying. I think that's a, a good place to end. I'm going to um, I'm going to link your article down below, and uh, yeah, the studies contained within it will also be linked. But thank you so much for uh, yeah taking the time to to speak and uh, to discuss these uh, interesting ideas, uh, which hopefully might be of some use to someone out there. No, thanks. You're welcome. And we can still help where we are, by the way, including sending yeah. money in particular, at least for the humanitarian side of things. There's all sorts of things we can do at our end, which are nonviolent too. Mm -hmm.